Have you ever become aware of a problem and just kept putting off taking care of it? A couple months ago, I noticed some significant corrosion on the top of our water heater where, like, where the cold water line comes in. I kept thinking that I should get that checked out, uh, but I delayed doing so. I'd go by the water heater, and every week or so, I'd take a look at it, and I'd think, uh, I should get on that, but I thought, it's going to be a hassle. It's probably going to be more expensive than I want to pay. Well, finally, after visions of a burst water heater began appearing in my dreams, (laughs) I called a professional to come and look at it. So this week, I met him at the door, and I prepped him. I said, listen, here's a little background. I have this issue with the water heater, and I I know it's not good. I said, "Uh, can you not laugh at me for putting this off so long? Because... I, I was worried that when he saw it, he, he would think it was pretty funny. And then he said, hey, I've seen almost everything. No worries. I promise to not laugh. So we go downstairs. I showed him the issue. He got out his flashlight. He took a closer look. I held my breath, and he remained stoic. And then finally, he lost it and started laughing so hard, his shoulders were heaving. Now, I guess... I should show you what he was laughing at. (laughs) You're laughing too. So after composing himself, he recommended a course of action to resolve the problem, and he explained to me that a slow leak had caused this considerable amount of corrosion and had weakened the fitting. Hey, do you have a slow leak? going on in your life? Has sin been causing some corrosion in your soul? Have you been putting off something that you know you need to take care of and maybe you're like, it's going to be too costly, too embarrassing, too hard, and so you just put it off. Well, this summer, we've been studying biblical concepts, which begin with the letters R-E. Last weekend, we defined repentance this way, turning from sin to the Savior, resulting in a change of attitude, affection, and action. So repentance involves a turning away from sin and a turning or returning to the Savior. Now, We never know how the Holy Spirit uses a sermon, but if you were here last weekend, perhaps you experienced, encountered the Holy Spirit convicting you, tugging at you, encouraging you, mobilizing you to take your next step. I I certainly sense that in all three services. Several uh, reached out this week to indicate some decisions that they have made as a result. Well, our topic today is return. And in one sense, it's a follow-up to the sermon last weekend because to return implies physical movement. It means to turn and go back and do again, to turn from evil by returning or turning to the good. 
It was also used in the Bible to refer to returning home. So speaking of returning, I'm going to invite us to return to the prophet Joel. That's a book we studied in late May, and one of the recurring themes of the book of Joel is to repent in light of the devastation caused by locusts, which were both real and representative of future judgment. At the end of May, we developed this thought that Joel was the first prophet to speak of the apocalyptic event referred to as the Day of the Lord. And so the context of our text is the devastation caused by locusts and the coming destruction triggered by the day of the Lord. And because of how his people were living, God disciplined them by sending locusts and, he said, there's a promise of future judgment coming. Well, let's walk through book of Joel chapter 1 verse 15. Alas, for the day, for the day of the Lord is near, and as destruction from the Almighty, it comes. It comes. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. Look over at Joel chapter 2, verse 1. Blow a trumpet in Zion. It's another name for Jerusalem. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Well, what's the alarm? Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. Why? For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. It is near. Joel 2 or says, blow a trumpet in Zion, sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Drop down to Joel 2, verse 11. The Lord utters his voice before his army, for his camp is exceedingly great. He who executes his word is powerful, for the day of the Lord is great and very awesome. Who can endure it? Now, the day of the Lord will have its ultimate fulfillment during the great tribulation, and that's an event you don't want to be around for. Uh, Listen to this description of what the conquering Christ will do in Revelation chapter 19, verse 15. Let me back up and pick up verse 13 and 14. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood, And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. Okay, now verse 15. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. Now, the plague of locusts was severe, but the day of the Lord will be horrific for those who are not saved. 
Malachi 3, 2 says, But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? The answer is no one. I'm thrilled Edgewood will be hosting a prophecy conference. We're calling it Living Now in Light of Forever. That'll be September 16th through 18th. And the purpose of biblical prophecy is far more than just knowing the main events of the future. No, it's to teach us how we should live in light of forever. Dr. Ray Pritchard will be preaching that weekend. Dr. Michael Radelnik will be speaking Friday night. He'll be live hosting Moody Radio's open line Saturday morning right here from the worship center. Levi Hazen, Jared Hall, Jason Crosby, and I will also be speaking. And by the way, many of you have tried to register for this. We just opened it this week. We've had some issues with our registration software, and it should be fixed soon. So keep checking back to edgewoodbaptist.net. Now, here's our main idea for the message. Because Jesus will return one day, we must return to him today. We begin with how we're, return, how we're to return to the Lord. I'm in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 in the first part of 13. Yet even now, listen, to, you just kind of feel and sense God's heart here. Yet even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting, with weeping, and with mourning, and rend your hearts and not your garments. I mean, the word yet tells us it's not too late to return right now. In the midst of looming judgment, God says there's a window in which you can respond before catastrophe strikes. So here's the idea. Do so immediately. Do so without delay. 2 Corinthians 6, 2, Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Listen to the urgency behind Acts 17, 30. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. The time to return to the Lord is always now. It's always now. Even now, God says, when things are falling apart, God longs for us to return to him. Listen to this similar appeal in Hosea 6, verse 1. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. You see, ultimately, God's retribution is meant to be redemptive. Oh, and would you notice this appeal comes directly from the Lord? That's the name Yahweh, the unpronounceable name. The name of the self-existent, covenant-keeping God, the one who has pre-existence, is also personally present with us. 
He has existed in eternity past, and he's present in the present. Revelation eleven seventeen says, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you've taken your great power and begun to reign. Now, we're told right here, we're just going to walk through the passage, five different traits when we return to him. Would you notice, number one, we're to return not half-heartedly, but wholeheartedly. And our return must begin internally as we're called to engage with our entire heart. Lamentations 3, verse 40, let us test and examine our ways and return to the Lord. It means we're to do an inventory of our lives and kind of check ourselves, check our spirit, see what's going on, and return to him. Deuteronomy 6.5, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with what? All your might. So we're to return with our whole heart. Notice next, he says, return with fasting. And the purpose of fasting is to deny the flesh, not just of food, but of all cravings. And the idea behind fasting is, in one sense, to starve the junk out, to spiritually detoxify so we can hunger and thirst for righteousness. I appreciated this insight. The purpose of fasting should be to take your eyes off the things of this world to focus completely on God. Fasting is a way to demonstrate to God and to ourselves that we are serious about our relationship with him. Oh, notice next, with weeping. When we come face to face with our own transgressions, it should lead us to tears of repentance. 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. (laughs) There's even more. So weeping, and then notice the next phrase, mourning. This is a word for wailing. Lamenting. The Bauli people of West Africa describe returning to the Lord this way when it hurts so much that I want to quit it. When it hurts so much, I want to quit it, quit the way I've been living. Notice finally with a torn heart. That word rend, we don't use that word much, it means to tear or rip apart. So the rending of garments was to represent the broken heart of the mourner. It was an expression of uncontrollable grief, terror, or horror. Now here's the backstory. These were like physical, outward signs of what was to be going on on the inside. So it was common for people to wear sackcloth like This, you wouldn't want to have this next to your skin, would you? Well, they would wear something that was actually made out of black goat's hair. Very rough, and they'd wear that next to their skin so it would chafe, and it would cause open sores to to show that they were grieving and mourning. They would also take ashes and kind of smear them on their heads on their faces, these black ashes, and then they would, they would literally tear their garments and they'd take their outer robe and they'd just tear it 
to let people know that there's some stuff going on the inside that's not so good. And so here's what God is saying to that. He's saying, okay, all those outward acts, which maybe initially were a demonstration of inward reality, had basically just become rituals. And God says, I want you on the inside to be broken. I want you to be torn up on the inside. Let me remind you what we read in Psalm 51.17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. John Newton, who wrote the song Amazing Grace, often said this, my grand point in preaching is to break the hard heart and to heal the broken one. Another pastor put it like this, the goal of preaching is to comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. I hope both of those things are happening right now. I hope if you're afflicted, you're being comforted. And I, and I hope if you're living just this comfortable life where it's all about you and your stuff and your things, and I hope God by his spirit is, is pushing on you, making you uncomfortable, unsettled. Friends, get this, because Jesus will return one day, we must return to him today. Why? Because Jesus could come back today. And so first, we must be contrite. Oh, I can't wait for you to see the second one. We're called to believe God's character. Verse 13 answers why we can return. Return, I'm in verse 13, to the Lord your God. (laughs) For he is gracious and merciful He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. (laughs) The word your refers to personal possession, indicating belonging. The phrase, Lord your God, speaks of a right relationship with him. Friends, aren't you glad that God is both powerful and personal? Aren't you glad that he invites you tonight to trust his character? Let me take you back to the time Moses was up on Mount Sinai. And he's up there to receive the Ten Commandments, but because he had been gone so long, what was happening down below? What were the people doing? Yeah, they're like, where's Moses? He's been up there a long time. People get restless, and they're like, hey, Aaron, can you make us some gods? Small g gods? To worship? Aaron's like, hey, take your gold off and let's throw it in and put it all together. And he made a golden calf. While Moses is up at the top of the mountain receiving the Ten Commandments. And God knew about that. So God has a conversation with Moses. And this lit God up. And God said, I'm going to consume them. In my righteous wrath, what does Moses do? 
Well, he immediately intercedes for the people. He asks God to turn from his burning anger and to relent from the disaster he had planned. (laughs) So Moses goes down the mountain. He sees the calf and God's people dancing before it. What does Moses do? He gets lit up. He throws the stone tablets on the ground, breaking them into pieces. He burns the calf with fire. He grounds it to powder. He scatters the ashes in water, and he made the people drink it. And then he called the people, and he said, Choose! Who are you going to follow? You're going to follow this way of living and and just living like you want and follow this golden calf or are you going to follow the Lord? You see, because of their spiritual corrosion, many of them persisted in rebellion. And you know what happened? They were consumed by a deadly plague. So that's the background that gets us to this. Before leaving Sinai, Moses longed for a fresh glimpse of God's glory. Listen to how God responded in Exodus thirty-three nineteen. He said to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name the Lord. Did you catch that? God's glory is connected to His goodness. So after making some new tablets of stone, the Lord descended in the cloud and He stood with Moses. And there He proclaimed the name of the Lord. I'm sure Moses is shaking in his sandals. You just ask to see God's glory, and I wonder if he's like God is going to appear in this display of holiness and glory and burning fire. Listen to how God reveals himself, Exodus 34, 6. The Lord, the Lord, Yahweh, Yahweh. That would have gotten Moses' attention. And then the Lord spells out the meaning of his name in words whose sweetness has never been surpassed. A God merciful and what? Gracious. Slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. The deacon spent, I don't even know how long it took us, maybe up to a year to go through a book written by Dane Ortland called Gentle and Lowly. Now listen to what Dane Ortland writes. When we speak of God's glory, we are speaking of who God is what he is like, his distinctive resplendence. Our deepest instincts expect him to be thundering, gavel-swinging, judgment-relishing. 
And then Exodus 34 taps us on the shoulder and stops us in our tracks. The bent of God's heart is mercy. The first two words, remember, this is how God describes himself. The first two words he uses are merciful and gracious. Now, this self-description of God found in Exodus chapter 34 is quoted in Psalm 86, verse 15, Psalm 103, verse 8, and guess what? Right here in Joel chapter 2, verse 13. Oh, let's look at it again. Return to the Lord your God. Here's why you can return. Because he is gracious and he's merciful He's slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and he relents over disaster. Isn't that good news, church? Warren Wiersbe writes this, the one thing that encourages us to repent and return to the Lord is the character of God. So we're urged to return for five reasons. And I want you to see they're all tied to his compassionate character. First, he is gracious. This word means the bestowal of unmerited favor. It means you and I don't deserve it. And it's unmerited favor bestowed from a superior to a needy inferior. And it was only used of God. The idea here is God is always gracious. It was Elizabeth Elliot who once said, no sin is great enough to drain dry the ocean of God's grace. Mm, There's more. He's merciful. Mercy means not getting what we deserve. This word is also translated as compassionate forgiveness. The Hebrews derive from a root word referring to a mother's womb, indicating the strong feelings a mother has for a child. Ortland writes, it means his mercy is not calculating and cautious like ours. That's true, right? When we're merciful, we're like, okay, I'll give you a little bit. His isn't like that. It is unrestrained, flood-like, sweeping, magnanimous. Another reason we can trust him, he's slow to anger. This is a Hebrew idiom. It literally is translated this way, long of nostrils. It refers to a horse flaring, like snorting. And so the idea is that God has a long fuse. So people have ample opportunity to repent and to return. Psalm 88, 38, yet he being, (laughs) this is so good, compassionate, atoned for their iniquity. He did not destroy them. He restrained his anger often. He held his anger back. And he did not stir up all his Wrath. One commentator said it well. God is always more willing to bless than to blast, (laughs) to pardon than to punish. 
to win by love than to wound by lashing. Notice next, he abounds in steadfast love. That word abound means <laughs> with great intensity and abundance. So we're to return to God because he has this overflowing, never-ending amount of love for his people. And that phrase, steadfast love, speaks of God's loyal covenant love. It refers to his unconditional his unconditional tenderness, his kindness, and his mercy. Now, to get this truth into our heads and hearts, the refrain for his steadfast love endures forever, for his steadfast love endures forever, is found 26 times in Psalm 136. For his steadfast love endures forever. 26 times. You see, God's love is not only abounding, it's also infinite and inexhaustible. As we see in Lamentations 3.22, the steadfast love of the Lord, do you know it? Never ceases. For his mercies never come to an end. Finally, he relents over disaster. The word relent means to take pity. This goes back to the situation with the golden calf. Let me take us back to Exodus. And the Lord relented from the disaster he had spoken of bringing on his people. Let's consider another quote from Ortland. The Christian life from one angle is the long journey of letting our natural assumptions about who God is over many decades fall away, being slowly replaced with God's own insistence on who he is. This is hard work. It takes a lot of sermons and a lot of suffering to believe that God's deepest heart is merciful and gracious, slow to anger. Now, because Jesus will return one day, we must return to him today. 2 Peter chapter 3 brings the truths of God's character and our need to be contrite together. So that's where we started. Be contrite and believe his character. Here in this passage, we see his patience and his power his mercy, and his judgment. God is slow to be angry, but his patience is on the clock. Why? Because the Lord is coming back soon. Well, I'll read it. You allow God's word to do what it will do in our lives as we're open to it. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Notice verse 10. But, this is the contrast, the day of the Lord 
will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. The heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Like two beams of the cross. Vertical, horizontal. We've considered two truths which must be held together. Truth number one, because of God's coming retribution, we must be contrite and return to him. Matthew 24, 44, words of Jesus, therefore you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Number two, because God is relational, we must believe his character and return to him. Oh, I love Romans 2, verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Ooh, coming day of the Lord should lead us to return to him and his kindness should lead us to return to him. We're called to be contrite and to believe God's character. And the cross is where justice and mercy meet. I I love Psalm 85 verse 10 in the King James. It reads like this, mercy and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. (laughs) So it's been a minute since I became an expert on water heaters. (laughs) And, And I never knew water heaters have something called a sacrificial anode rod in them. Never knew that. This rod is designed to sacrifice itself. The idea is the contaminants attack the sacrificial anode instead of eating away at the water heater itself. Isn't it interesting? It's called a sacrificial anode rod. Now, in a deeper way, much deeper, Jesus has absorbed the corrosive qualities of our repugnant rebellion when the sins of the entire world were placed on him as the sacrificial substitute who died in our place on the cross. 